Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. I'm Kim Grenolds of Dogman.com with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund. Big news that dropped Thursday morning. For the next five years, the opponent's schedule has been released. We don't have any dates, and I know everybody's saying, well, what date, what time? And we just don't know that. But for the next five years, we know who University of Washington will be playing in their conference schedule for the next five years. Um, it kind of caught us a little bit off guard. I wasn't expecting it to be announced this soon. And I surely wasn't expecting five years worth of opponents to be named. Chris, catch you a little bit off guard that uh, they announced it this early? Um, well, I don't know how the Big Ten works. So, <laughs> Well, obviously more efficiently than the Pac-12, because we probably would have gotten this in March if it was the Pac-12. Yeah, and I think I was under the impression, because I did watch, try to watch as much as I could on the Big Ten network, that they clearly had this set up with just USC and UCLA their scheduler had kind of figured it out for the 16 teams. And then now that they added Washington and Oregon, they kind of had to go back to the drawing board. Apparently they used the the scheduling guru, that guy that was helping out Michigan state. Apparently they got him in and they were, they were having stories like he would put in all his information and then he would just let his computer run like overnight while he was sleeping. And then he'd wake up in the morning and he'd look at all the information. There'd be like 50 different scenarios that you could choose from. So they've been on top of this thing. It's been kind of crazy. But, yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that they were literally going to come out with all this information literally yesterday. And, Scott, I think they just put it into chat GPT. What do you think? No, no. Kim, you already <laughs> said, didn't you, that the uh, um, secretary does it. Well, for the Pac-12, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, no. Um, but I, like, Scott, like Softy said, Scott, just real quick, mm-hmm. we're at the big boys table now. These people know how to do things. And even just watching the Big Ten Network, we got an idea of how they run things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and they had comments on it. They they talked about, you know, the, the parameters that the scheduler was under, that no East Coast team had to go to the West Coast more than one time per season. Um, and... You know, Washington is going to have to go back east several times, um, but that's just kind of the nature of the beast when you have, what, two more than two more than three quarters of the conference all being on the or almost three quarters of the conference being on the on the east coast or in the east coast in, you know, east of where Washington is. So, um, you know, it's it's um, it's kind of interesting the way they have to do all of it and all the way that 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 they had to do it. And then they had the. Uh, what do they call them? The protected rivalries that that I didn't know. Uh, Illinois had three protected rival rivalries. Same, same with Iowa. Yeah, yeah. So I I was a little shocked by that. But you know, Michigan, Ohio State is definitely one. Washington, Oregon, USC, UCLA, um, Michigan, Michigan State. Those those are all ones that that are going to be protected by the by the Big Ten and and yeah. and played played at different times. So it's it's it the parameters that they had to go on and and everything. I, I I think it's going to be real interesting. And if you look at who Washington is going to travel to that first year, yep. Washington has never played at Beaver Stadium at Penn State. So that's going to be a huge trip for Husky fans. And, Chris, one of the things that stood out to me was I was hearing rumors that there would be 10 conference games and only allow two um you know, out of conference games, but it looks like they went ahead with the nine conference game schedule, which makes it a little bit interesting because that means every other year you're going to have five conference games at home and then the following year only four. So it's that odd number thing that we've been dealing with for a number of years with Washington. They already have Weber state and it's at Eastern Michigan next year. I think that's right. Yeah. They have. Yeah. Yeah. So that leaves room for them to add Washington State if they can work out the financials. But um, my gut tells me that it made it difficult to do the 10 conference games because you would need to have every school 
have that availability for the next five years. And I got the feeling that maybe some of the other schools in the conference are locked in with long-term contracts for those out of, um, out of conference games. Well, right. Whenever you jump a, a number of conference games, if you go from nine to 10 or 10 to nine or eight to nine or whatever the case may be, you're going to add a whole level of scheduling snafus because of the fact that nowadays you've got to schedule your stuff you know, almost a decade ahead of time, the way that things are going and the way that the price can be commanded from teams like Tulsa, who came into Husky Stadium. You know, they I don't remember what the fee was, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was around a million dollars. I mean, this is this is big money for the group of five schools and the and the lower kind of power five echelon schools to be able to make their paydays to, to help really buffer their athletic departments when things get lean and Right after COVID, things were obviously really, really lean. And so they they rely heavily on that non-conference uh, revenue to be able to do that. I think, guys, the one thing that really impressed me about this scheduling and, and kind of the rules that they had, like you guys were talking about the protected rivalries, I thought what was really great about it as far as the West Coast schools go is that every time that, the, that the, a Big Ten school has five away games, their protected rivalry game is considered an away game. So even though, yes, Washington going to Oregon or USC going to UCLA is still technically a rivalry game, it's so much easier to think of that as an away game when you're only having to fly an hour in the case of Washington or having to travel across the city in the case of USC as opposed to going across the country for another away game. So I thought that that was that was pretty savvy scheduling on the on the schedulers part. The other thing that's interesting is uh, Ohio State was supposed to be at Washington uh, this year. But back in February, they canceled the contract and sent Washington uh, a check for five hundred thousand uh, dollars. I talked to a UW official yesterday and they go, yeah, we got it. I go, do they want it back? And they said, probably, but it's not happening. And they know that. So. Um, I think that's kind of uh, an interesting point, too, that, uh, you know, Scott, they got 500K from Ohio State. Aren't, aren't they going to get money from Michigan now for the 2028 return game that, that Michigan's supposed to come back to? Yeah, we'll have to ask about that. But I also asked, I said, what you know, we've got Tennessee on the schedule coming up here, you know, down the road in a few years. And I asked, what's the chances of that happening? And I just got an eye roll. I don't think that tech Tennessee home and home is ever going to happen. So that just, uh, that just stinks, man. That's a game I really was looking forward to watching and, yeah. and being there, you know, cause, cause uh, you know, Tennessee has always, has always been a place that I've always been very intrigued by to go see a game at. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're getting the crap beat out of you in the conference, do you really want to add an sec school? Uh, well, everybody's complained about the sec, not wanting to come up here. <laughs> yeah. and, well, and the SEC's argument has been the exact same thing is we already play a tough schedule. Why would we add more tough opponents? Yeah. And Chris, the other interesting thing is um, Wilner was talking about having a conversation with the guy at the Big Ten about possibly in the month of November being open to have the, a non-conference game in the middle of November instead of the preseason like Washington has always had. Or like the SEC has always done. Can you remember a game that what a non-conference game that Washington has played mid-season as opposed to the beginning of the season? Can you remember that ever happening? No, uh, the only thing I can remember is when they had to reschedule the Miami game because of 9/11, and so right. they played at the end of the year. Other than that, I no. It's, I'm just, sorry, Chris. I didn't mean to interrupt, but they they they've had um, situations where they played two uh, non-conference games and then played a conference game and then played an, another non-conference game. But as far as, you know, playing six, seven, eight games and then having a, a non-conference game, it hasn't happened since I've started covering the team. And that was in 2004. And Chris, yeah, what that does is it opens up. The, by the time the opens. bye week shows up, the bye, by the time the bye week shows up, always the, all the non-conference games have been played as long well, as I, I think what I think what this is leading to is ultimately that Apple Cup game being played in November. And at Lumen. <laughs> well, here's what people need to understand. And I don't think people think it through a little bit. A home game is going to generate anywhere between seven and $10 million for the university of Washington. Why would they give that up? Why would they 
go to Pullman to get a million or two million dollars when they can generate seven to 10 million when they're in financial trouble. They need the money. You know, and if I'm the athletic director at UW and maybe this did happen, I'm not playing that Apple Cup over in Pullman unless you give me the uh, the revenue difference. And if Washington State's not willing to do it and upper campus is going to pressure you into playing that game, well, then upper campus can write a check because we've talked about this numerous times. That interest carry on the stadium goes from $7 million this year to $10 million next year. Now, if upper campus wants to go ahead and, you know, take care of that difference for them to play in Pullman, okay, then we can have that conversation. But when you've got an athletic program that's in financial you know straits like it is right now you can't expect them to subsidize a washington state or take a loss because the upper campus wants to play that apple cup let that if they want it they can subsidize it and i think that's the conversation that some people may have already been having so so here's the hypothetical guys and tell me what you would think initially because obviously we don't know how the numbers would pencil out but i think just based on common sense we would have a pretty fair idea about it if the game was played at lumen every year and whoever's game it was for their home game give them the revenue so if if it's so if the game was supposed to be played in pullman and they play it in lumen instead which apple cup is going to make more money for washington state the game at lumen or the game in pullman again why would you want to do why would you want to give that revenue to another school when you can schedule another school like a Fresno State or a Cal Poly and you could schedule a school like that and keep all of the revenues instead of giving giving it up but the, you didn't hear what i said Ken. I, I absolutely heard it and i absolutely heard it but at the end of the day it still comes down to the money distribution and why would why, I mean, if you're a Washington official and you're looking at that balance sheet and you know that you're running at a deficit, why would you run at more of a deficit just to play the Apple Cup? But you're still going to have to pay someone else a million, million and a half to come to Seattle to, to get whipped up. What? And no one's going to want to go see that game. But if you're generating seven to ten million dollars worth of revenue, because when you start to take a look at these home schedules, take a look at the home schedule for next year. They're going to sell more season tickets next year based upon that home schedule. You know, and like I said, it still comes down to the money, because if you go to Lumen and you're giving Washington State the um, the lion's share of the revenues, why would you do that when you can keep all of the revenues and pay somebody a million bucks to come in like a Fresno State? Ultimately, Kim, it comes down to whether or not Washington sees value in the Apple Cup. And I would think that a lot of people do see value in it. Again, it still comes down to the financial issues. If Washington was Notre Dame and sitting on a boatload of cash where it didn't matter to them, but with the financial straits that I'm hearing the, the athletic department is in, uh, and like I said, that number is a $10 million jump into next year. So what kind of help are you going to be getting from upper campus if they want that game? I mean, we could talk about the importance of it and all that stuff, and it's all true. And that's all great. It's all fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, it still comes down to you want us to take a loss. Well, then subsidize it. And that goes for both Washington State and Upper Campus. You want us to play over there? Well, then subsidize the difference and make us whole for what we would make for having that home game at Washington. Well, Kim, you'll also remember, guess who said that they're going to play the Apple Cup every year from now on? Um, the person that I would be asking to write the check. Mm, yeah, well, Anamari Kase, she said she's going to play. See, they're going to play the Apple Cup every year. So how do yeah. you square that circle? Well, that's there again. That's what I'm going to say. If you want us to do that, then you need us to write us a check because the athletic department does not own a Husky Stadium. Upper Campus owns a Husky Stadium. Upper Campus does not pay the athletic department to use Husky Stadium. They use it all the time. So that's where things are going to come to a head where, you know, they've never really depended on Upper Campus to subsidize some of these programs. And if Upper Campus is going to want some of these programs subsidized, you know, hey, you can't expect us to pay for it. Hey, well, Chris. Hey, Chris, I want to I want to yeah. go to Hawaii right. next week, you know, to do some scouting, you know, and lay on the beach. And I want you to cover the check. Right. But you're talking about the discussion between upper campus and the athletic department, correct? You're not talking yeah. about a larger discussion between Washington and Washington State. What I think this will open up, and I think it's a discussion that has needed to be opened up for quite a long time, is the idea of Husky Stadium being used for a lot of other events like concerts, whatever you want to use it for. And well, we had, I know, 
I know there's been pushback from Montlake and Laurel. Well, not, hey, Chris, it's not so much that. It's that when the stadium was expanded um, back in the day, they had that agreement with the city of Seattle to provide the transportation. That's why you've seen all the metro buses and all of that. Washington has to subsidize that. And you have to go through all this red tape with the Seattle City Council to have anything there. And I've said this before, you know, I saw Fleetwood Mac back in the day, back in Heckad. I saw a couple of different concerts in Heckad. But when the promoters look at the cost of that, because what they have to go through with the city, it makes it cost prohibitive. Now, I know that there was some attempts to go to the city to have some of those things changed, but it never went anywhere. And, yeah, they'd love to have more events at Husky Stadium and at uh, Heck Ed. But that's a Seattle City Council deal where they're going to have to uh, rectify that. And it doesn't make sense because now they've got the light rail going there. So if that's going to happen, University of Washington is going to have to talk with the city and get that st- I'm not sure if it was a law, if it was uh, a new code thing or whatever, but that's the reason they don't have more events at those two venues. Well, you say you said they tried before and it didn't go anywhere. Sounds to me like it was just a matter of will. Sounds like they didn't try to push hard enough for it. Like they didn't they didn't want it bad enough. Well, with the Seattle City Council and they're talking about homeless drugs and all the other stuff, it just wasn't a high priority for them. We're we're devolving the conversation. The point being is. It, there, there's a venue there ready-made for yep. big events to happen where the city of Seattle can actually get a slice of that if they want. Yep. It's just a matter of how much do all the parties want it to happen. We'll see. Yeah. You know, the mayor played football at Washington, so I'd love to see more events there. Like I said, you know, it would be, it would be awesome. But, you know, Scott, you take a look at that schedule for next year at home, um, you know, Michigan. There's a big Michigan contingent in this city. Northwestern, you know, out of Chicago, there's a lot of alumni here from Northwestern. UCLA and USC all at home. They're going to sell some season tickets next year. Oh, yeah, you would definitely think so. And then, you know, they go on the road at Indiana, at Iowa, at Oregon, at Penn State, at Rutgers. Man, it's going to be got two Midwest, two essentially East Coast and one right here, you know, just right down I-5. So, um, going to be a real fun schedule in 2024. I'm really looking forward to uh, covering that and just seeing what it's like. You know, it, I don't know about you, Chris, because I mean, Kim, you you also cover the team, but you don't do a lot of the um, stuff that Chris and I have to do with the with the writing and all that different stuff and doing and all that. I mean, it's it's just such a different feel to me, and I I don't know, man. It, it just I'm I'm having to go back and, and look at, you know, I know, I know the history that Washington has had every week, you know, Chris does the um, history of the, with the opponents. And I mean, some of these are teams that Washington has never played and it's just, it's, it's going to be real interesting to, to build this, you know, how, how, see how this is built, you know, over the next you know decade or so. Hey, Chris, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when I was a lot younger, a lot younger and you're younger than me. But I remember in the times they used to have they used to do the list of the worst football teams. Uh, What was it? The best of the worst. I can't remember what it was. It was in the Seattle Times that they would always list them. And uh, Northwestern was always the worst, always the worst. Do you remember that? Yeah, until Dennis Green got there. Yeah, I mean, there was the same era that Oregon State would have been in. It's Oregon State and. They've been like Oregon State and Northwestern and like Iowa State and like there were there were always some some perennial bottom dwellers for sure. Yeah. I, I And guys, I was just looking real quick because I was trying to think when was the last time that Washington had home games of, against both USC and UCLA? And, you know, you've got to go back years and years before they even went back to that schedule where you had one home and one away. It's been a long time since they've even done that, but I had to go all the way back to 1990. I think is the is the last year where they where Washington had both UCLA and USC at home, and we remember the 1990 game against USC. That's the that's the all I saw was purple game. Yeah, and so I remember the 1990 UCLA game. Don't even get me started on that one. Prevented them from that playing was, in for a title. A, that was also Maddox. Tommy Maddox. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting, too, is when you take a look at the road trips that they have next year, Indiana, Iowa, Penn State and Rutgers, we're talking about the three hour time difference. And when Washington in the past, has I been don't going think you back, are with Iowa. Are you? Are you? I might be only Iowa, two. 
That one's too. Yeah. Yeah. But Sorry. on those East Coast road trips, they've typically been going in on Thursdays instead of Fridays. They go in a day earlier. So I don't know. That'll be interesting to see if that happens. They go in that day earlier because I know back at um, Michigan State this year, uh, they tried their darndest just to keep everything on the same schedule. They tried to keep their schedule on the West Coast schedule. So did I, but that didn't work out very well. But that'll be interesting to see if they head out on Thursdays instead of Friday. And if they do head out on Thursday, how does that impact their schedule? What do they typically do on Thursdays that they're going to miss if they travel on Thursdays? Yeah, the 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 one thing I'll say is Washington has been practicing at 10 a.m. basically or 9 9 a.m. I think um, for for years. And you know, because for all the people who had to, you know, who are Seahawk fans, you remember the the troubles that Seattle and a lot of West Coast teams had going to the East Coast, playing three hours earlier. It was different for them because they always practice midday and all that different stuff. Well, Washington and most of these college programs are practicing at nine, ten o'clock in the morning because they have class schedules that these guys have to get to. So I don't think it's going to have the impact from a playing early standpoint as maybe some of those other you know, it, it is it impacted like NFL teams. And Chris, I didn't dive into it as deep as you probably did. But what were they saying about starting times for um, the West Coast teams? Well, I, I don't know. Honestly, I didn't I didn't see a ton of discussion about start times because obviously there are no times attached to these games. But if you think about it logically, guys, at least the way I'm thinking about it, and you guys can totally tell me if I'm wrong, but it just seems to me that if you're if you're living in Seattle or if you're living in, in the West Coast in general, this is going to be great for you if you're not a big fan of the later start times. Like if Pac-12 after dark for you was like the bane of your existence, this will be good news for you because anytime there's going to be a late night game, it's likely going to be out on the East Coast for obvious reasons and vice versa. If there's going to be Big Ten matchups out in Seattle or Eugene or L.A., those games are going to have to be started earlier because they will end up being primetime out on the East Coast. So if there's a, uh, you know, if they want to start a game at 730, but it's out in Seattle, that would mean the games would be starting at 1030 for like Rutgers fans or Maryland fans or Penn State fans. That's not tenable, obviously. So if they want to start that game more like 7.30 East Coast time, now you're talking about a 4.30 game out West. So, like I said, I think in general that was my first thought uh, when Washington and Oregon joined the Big Ten in particular is that this whole idea of Big Ten after dark, for instance, would only be happening for the games out East. And for them, that's fine. They can start their games at 7, 7.30, 8 o'clock, but that means no later than like a 5 o'clock game out West. Hey, Chris, you said you had a chance to watch quite a bit of the Big Ten Network, and I jumped in on that as well. And I'm just looking at the quality of what they're producing. And to me, I I kept on thinking, this is the difference between going to Q13 and ESPN. It just seems like it's light years ahead of where the Pac-12 Network is. I don't I I didn't necessarily have that same idea because it looked like they had a main anchor. So for the Big Ten Network, it's Dave Revson, who hopefully people might remember him from ESPN. Just like the Pac, the Pac-12 Networks has Ashley Adamson or whoever. But then they supplement him with a couple of, of guys that used to play in the in the conference. So for like for like the Pac-12 Networks, you've got Lincoln Kennedy, you've got Nigel Burton, you've got Max Brown, you've got some of these other guys. Whereas in the Big Ten Network, the guys like Howard Griffith. They had Jake Butt, who played for Michigan. So they, you know, they the same kind of outline, the same kind of blueprint exists for both. I just think because the Big Ten networks, I don't know if they've been around a little bit longer, but it it does feel like they're a little bit more streamlined and a little bit more together in terms of kind of the content that they're putting out and kind of their packages that they create. But I, I didn't see a chasm of difference between the two entities, frankly. I mean, it just, it seemed like it was a regional network that kind of handled its own conference and each one has its strengths and weaknesses. And there's no doubt that I think a lot of people will see that the PAC 12 network probably has more weaknesses than most, you know, maybe it's just because it's younger than most of them, but I don't know. 
Well, turning on the Pac-12 network, you know, and you're seeing volleyball and then turning on the Big Ten and you're seeing football. So <laughs> well, I, thought, I thought you were talking about the anchors and the no, the more the pro- more the production quality, just the production quality. I just thought it was more, it was tighter and uh, uh, more well done. But there well, again, I, I we're dealing with a volleyball game, Kim. So I don't know what their production value. <laughs> I was just talking about their news stuff. So. Yeah. And there again, you know, we're talking about um, the Pac-12 offices. Who, anybody who works at the Pac-12 offices, I'm sure they have either left or have their resume out there. So, uh, again, not to dive too far into the weeds, but who's going to be left around the Pac-12 tournament come this March? So um, that'll be interesting. But, hey, you know, Scott, it'll be interesting, too, you know, talking to a few people. Phone was blowing up all day yesterday. Um, Bloomington, Indiana next year, uh, supposed to be just a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And um, that shouldn't be that difficult to get to from Indianapolis, Des Moines, Iowa, maybe a little bit. Or Chicago, even. Yeah. Des Moines, Iowa, a little bit tricky to get to. Um, Oregon's always tricky to go to, you know, because it really doesn't make sense to fly down to Eugene, but it's a five hour drive. Penn State. It's Penn State's going to be rough to get to, um, you know, uh, one of my really, really, really good friends who owns Vino at the landing, Rick down there. He uh, got his undergrad at Penn State and he said, yeah, it's difficult to get to. They have an airport. But if you're going to try to get to Penn State just without driving any at all, it's you're talking minimum of 10 hours uh, travel on that. And if you fly into one of the closer cities, it's two and a half to three hours and it's not an interstate. Most of the way, it's a two lane road and Rutgers, of course. Hey, hey, Chris, I don't think we'll ever forget after the Rutgers game last time. Do you remember what happened post game when we left the stadium? Do you remember that? I really don't. I just remember going to Yankee Stadium before the game. I remember that. Don't you remember ordering the Uber to go back and the guy showing up and go, yeah, I'm not going there and driving off. Uh, uh-uh. we, <laughs> yeah. we were staying right next. We, we were staying right across from the Newark airport. How bad could it have been? Remember it's Newark. He sh- yeah. He, he showed up and said, yeah, I'm not going there and drove off. It's li- so we it was had literally right on the interstate. It wasn't that. Uh, it was midnight and we got stranded there. So we had to call. I think it was Uber that said no. And we called Lyft and Lyft took us there. I, yeah, you have a much better memory on that stuff than I do. It clearly didn't impact my recollections of that game at all. <laughs> yeah, no, that was pretty wild. But, you know, jumping ahead to the 25 schedule, we go back to Maryland, we go Baltimore and then Michigan again, and then at UCLA and Camp Randall, Wisconsin. So um, that Maryland game is kind of an outlier, but Michigan just seems like we've been there several times. Yeah, one, one of the things that I think people need to remember, too, that's important is that there's a reason why they did this thing in kind of a five-year bundle, is that they wanted to make sure that every single team played every other team at least twice in that five-year span. So you'll see some teams might play each other three times, but every single Big Ten team plays every other Big Ten team at least twice in this five-year package that they put together, which I thought was kind of cool. Like I said, it's going to be interesting with 20, uh, 24, you have five um, non-conference, excuse me, five conference games on the road. But in 25, you only have four in Maryland, Michigan, at UCLA and at Wisconsin. And the whole time I was down in Tucson this past week, I was thinking, okay, we don't get to go to Tucson. We don't get to go to Tempe. We don't get to go to San Francisco uh, every year. So we're trading those schools for the Midwest schools, the Michigan, Maryland, Rutgers, and that. So um, it sounds like the only warm weather game we're going to get uh, on the road for the next five years is going to be, uh, you know, when we head down to L.A. Yeah, and I, the 2026 away schedule, even though there's five games, seems totally reasonable to me because two of those games are West Coast teams in USC and Oregon. So obviously they're going to be great games, big time games. But the other three games are Michigan State, Nebraska and Purdue. Seems totally reasonable to me, right? If you're coming all the way from Seattle, like you can get to Detroit. Like, Kim, you just did that. Nebraska is totally doable. And then Purdue, from what I've heard, they might even have like an airport. There's an airport, right? It's yeah, right, right on the campus. Yeah, right there. So um, now I don't know. You probably have to connect because West Lafayette, it's not <laughs> it's not a major. There's not problem. a lot of Seattle, Seattle to West Lafayette direct. So right? I'm thinking I don't know if you fly into Indianapolis or if you fly somewhere else. But either way, it seems very doable um, from a travel standpoint. Um, yeah, the Happy Valley one is going to be really, really interesting to me because I didn't see any connecting flights to Harrisburg from 
Pittsburgh, but I didn't, I did see one from Philadelphia and it's like an hour to get to um, college. Uh, was it uh, state college yeah. in Pennsylvania? So well, I, who knows? Maybe there are flights from Pittsburgh, but I didn't see it. Let's any. be honest, Kim, you, you said it yourself. I think on that you're praying that that one isn't, like in the middle of November, right? But the Iowa um, game is <laughs> the, Iowa, the game. Iowa game isn't going to be fun either. But at least at the very least, you're flying into a major city there, you know, yeah, from, when, when you're flying in. But well, remember, guys, the University of Iowa is in Iowa City. It's not in Des Moines. Yeah, but how that isn't that far. I and I don't know. I'd have to look. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, asked but, I asked William Inge. I said, "What are you know those games back there? You know, in Minnesota, Indianapolis, especially Iowa." What are those going to be like if you guys get scheduled those games in November? And he said it usually doesn't start getting bad back there until December. The end of November, early December is when the weather really starts to change back there. But we've all seen those snow games on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, love them. Washington's been a part love of snow them. games, guys. Why, why, why is weather a problem for a team from the Northwest? Let's get real. Come on. This is Husky weather, <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, I mean, look at not just that, Chris. It, what was the temperature when uh, it, when Peterson took Washington back for I think it's 2017 when uh, um, Williams went for that long run and it was wasn't it it was the day after Thanksgiving and it was like what 18 degrees or something like that I don't know I just think of the snowball like it, with with gas well the, yeah I remember snowball, those, yeah I, I remember the snowball all the way back to 92 or yeah. 93 yeah. or whatever and, it was. and they and that one where they had to have everybody come to Husky Stadium and flush the toilets at the same time remember yeah. that and and uh, Lonzel Hill they they tackled his uh hand, his hand warmers instead of him and and well, you know all those things so there's yeah, been a well, lot of games that Washington uh, playing like that I was gonna say I've always referenced it's either like the 80 or 81 game against USC at Husky Stadium where Jim Murray famously said that it was the weather was so bad there that the toilets had white caps in them. Yeah. And uh, and and that's the one where Fred Small, um, that's when it was still legal to get a fumble in the end zone. And they that's I think they won like 13 to three or whatever. That It was super awful out there. But yeah, yeah not, weather shouldn't be a problem. It's not so much the weather. It's the I, I still have trauma from that uh, snowball with Miles Gaskin driving from Pullman to Spokane on the two lane road and more cars seem to be in the ditch than they were on the road. So still traumatized from what was what did it take us two and a half hours? It took us a while, but it would have taken us a lot longer um, because everyone that was trying to go from Spokane down through like Colfax was on the side of the road. And, and like every quarter mile, we could see either a police car or an ambulance or somebody on that other side going south because yep. it was just an absolute train wreck. Because at least we were late enough trying to get out of, of, of Pullman and Colfax where people ahead of us going to Spokane, it kind of blazed a little bit of a trail, but going back south the other way, no one had, and it was just an absolute train wreck. And then when you take a look at the 27 schedule, this is interesting. Um, they, at Minnesota, at Northwestern, at Penn State, and at Rutgers, and this is a long time ago, but back in the early 60s, Washington-Minnesota was quite the rivalry. And I can't remember Washington in the past 40 years if they've played Minnesota. But that was a big rivalry back in the early 60s. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. look real quick and see when the last time they played, just whether it was that Rose Bowl game or not. Well, uh, again, that, that trip shouldn't be that bad because oh, you're flying no, into Minneapolis. Number 77, um, Don James, the first the Rose Bowl year in 77 they played and lost. On like I think they lost like on a late field goal if I remember. Wow. And then uh, 28 Illinois at Indiana at Maryland at Ohio State at Oregon. So just you know like I said the schedules it's going to be interesting. I would guess that we probably won't get dates on this until March maybe. I, I think they definitely 24. Yeah, 2024. So right. the thing is, I, I think I think the the best thing that you could have. So one of the reasons that the NFL releases their schedule early, like, like in March or February, whenever they do it is so that they have that to talk about all through the month of April when, or, and even in May when they're doing the draft and then they're, they're getting ready for OTAs and doing all that stuff. So you have, you just have this constant news cycle and news thing to talk about. And I think that's what the big 10 will want with, with spring practices at wash, you know, during the, during the spring and in March and J- April, they they're going to want people to have something to talk about. Yeah, no, it's it's going going to be interesting to see 
I'm, I find it hard to believe that Washington would have um, two road games in a row uh, traveling back to a different time zone. It'll be interesting to see if that actually happens for next year. Do they have Michigan and Northwestern back to back? I don't think so. So it'll be interesting to see if they have those back to back away games when the schedule yeah. comes out. I have a feeling it would be like Michigan State and then in 2026, Michigan State and then an, and then an Oregon. Right. Or something. Yeah, where it's more of a West Coast kind of a West Coast, a West Coast to Midwest slash East Coast. Kind of Guys, thing. the other thing that I'm kind of curious about, too, is I haven't really and we haven't really talked about this. What kind of the Big Ten rules are in regards to the networks like Fox and and what have you? Because I know that they play Friday games in the Big Ten. Do they play Thursday games? Could there be a th- like yes, a they do thing. They do. OK. Yeah, I know all of it's going to be interesting when this comes out, but just kind of an interesting week for us, too. It's just kind of uh, it just seems kind of weird by week with Oregon coming up. Not a lot of excitement generated for that quite yet, but I expect it to start picking up Saturday. When do they typically announce game day? Uh, it, Pretty much right after the yeah. right after the other one happens. Yeah. Yeah. So I and would think within, within 24 hours of the Red River rivalry being played, they'll announce it. Everything indicates that that game is going to be at Washington next Saturday, 1230 kickoff on big TV on ABC. But um, just, uh, you know, thoughts just this week. It just seems kind of weird. Well, it, it well, personally, for me, it landed on it landed at a good time because I've got uh, some family stuff that I wanted to, to uh, deal with and, and uh, good things like not bad things, but good things. And so I was able to travel and take care of some of that stuff. So. This is the nice thing about being on the Internet is that you can travel and still feel like you're you're taking care of business and you're doing what you need to do. But, yeah, for me, it was fine. But uh, part of it is also knowing that we got to get a little bit of relaxation in um, to the whole idea that this next week is going to be massive, Scott, because not only is it, you know, the biggest game in this rivalry between Oregon and Washington in terms of their ranking, because we there's never been a game like this with where, where Oregon and Washington have been two top 10 teams. But on top of it, then there's media day for men's and women's basketball in Las Vegas starting next Tuesday. And so Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be just absolutely nutballs in terms of content and in terms of trying to get all this information out that we can. And then the buildup to the Oregon game is going to be intense. Then there's going to be that game day. And then depending on what happens in the result of the game, then the following game is going to be even more hype because it's literally like one and oh, this is their whole mantra. It's like, can they keep building on this one and oh thing? And if they beat Oregon, now all of a sudden the next game looks even bigger. If they beat those guys, it gets even bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I, I'm, I'm not remembering for some reason who's the game after. Is it USC? Uh, God, I, yeah, I'd have to check to be honest. I can't I, remember off the top I'm of my totally head. I'm totally drawing it's a not, blank on it. It's not USC though. It's um, it's uh, Arizona State. Arizona State. Yeah, so, it's Arizona State, and then um, then at yeah. Stanford, then the 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 real gauntlet is the last four at USC, right. Utah at home, at Oregon State, Washington State at home. Yeah. So. No schedule coming up is it's definitely going to be interesting, but uh, it'll be good just to kind of relax today and watch football, you guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it will be fun. Red River Classic is one of the ones that I always – that one and the big game or two that I always try to make uh, make time for. I tell my kids, hey, three and a half hours, leave me alone. And it never works, but that's what I tell them. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just and, – and my youngest is really starting to get into football. So who do we want to win, Dad? <laughs> Stuff like that. It's pretty funny. And Dad, because he knows I hate the Broncos, he says, Dad – if the Broncos played Oregon, who would you root for? <laughs> so I was like, oh, my gosh, kid. All right. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you just say, mom said she was taking you guys out for ice cream. Go talk to mom. Yeah. But- the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. 
Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Anyways, hey, Scott, just maybe update us a little bit. Anything going on recruiting-wise? Uh. You know, I mean, the coaches all week have been out seeing seeing prospects, whether it's just at workouts or or if it's uh, at um, at uh, at games. There were there were coaches out on the road watching games last night. I know Noah Carter was one that they were going to go out and see. That's the edge commit um, from uh, Arizona that Washington has has gotten. And um, they they saw Keona Wilhite last week. And uh, that that's a that's a recruitment to continue to keep an eye on. We're pretty sure something's going to happen very soon. I put a crystal ball in for UW to get Keona Wilhite. Several other uh, analysts have put that in as well. I think Washington's in great shape with him. He just decommitted from Arizona, kid who just kind of came on the radar. And his teammate is Elijah Rushing. I think most people who follow recruiting know who Elijah Rushing is. He's the number one edge prospect in the country. There's a lot of people, and I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about a lot of people who think that Keona Wilhite is the better prospect long-term than Elijah rushing because he's, he's versatile. He can play almost anywhere. I think he's a guy that, that Husky fans need to be really excited about if the Huskies are able to reel him in, which I think they will be. Um, but uh, the coaches were out on the road. They'll be back in the office on Saturday. I think they're, they're running a, a short practice on Saturday later today. I mean, and then on Sunday they'll be uh, they'll, they'll just be back to their normal, practice schedule because they always do a practice on Sunday. Mondays are off. That's when they do, they do treatments. And then they're back to the game plan in, in putting things, doing all the different things they do on, on Wednesday and Thursday, or on hey, Tuesday and Wednesday. And Scott, just, I don't know how to say this, but Jason Brown, um, the running back from O'Day, mm-hmm. and uh, it looks like he's been crystal ball to go to Oregon by some of yep. the recruiting analysts and, I know Washington fans are freaking out a little bit, but let's put some context behind this. And we're not talking spin. This is not spin. We talk to a lot of people. We talk to a lot of people who talk to a lot of people, you know, and just to protect. And we sources. form our own opinions by actually going and watching kids play in person. And talking to coaches, talking to people who are at the yeah. game and watching it. But the thing of it is um, – we we don't put out everything we know because if we did, our sources would dry up. But mm-hmm. it also helps us when we know what's going on. It also helps us form our opinions when we know what's going on. Break down Jason Brown and what's going on in that recruitment a little bit because he's a uh, he's a good player. He's a good player, yeah, and a good kid. And would he be good at Washington? Yes. He's not going to be a world beater though. I, I don't think that any school that he goes to, he's is he going to put up you know fifteen hundred yards and thirty touchdowns. He's just he's not that guy. And I think he'd be a good compliment back. I don't think he's going to be a guy who's going to you know blow the doors off of anyone. But uh, went and saw him last week. Was really impressed by what I saw. Completely different running back than I saw as a sophomore and junior the past two years. And that's when I started to form a really kind of, I don't want to say negative opinion of him, but negative opinion of 
him as a prospect, not as a person. He's a great kid, smart, good leader, all those different things. But as far as him as a football player, I just didn't see a guy who should be rated as, you know, the number one, number even top five, top 10 guy in the country. Then I, then I started talking to some other people and they're like, well, the, the running back class um, in the country overall is horrid this year. And, and so that's one of the reasons he is the number one guy. But the other thing is um, he just, he gained a lot of weight after his freshman year when he looked really explosive. One of the first time a, a true a freshman has started for Monty Kohler over at O'Day and he goes on to have a really good freshman season and everybody's excited about him and all this different stuff. Then he puts on 25, 30 pounds, whatever it was. I don't know the exact amount, but he's put, he put on a ton of weight. He got big. He got stiff. He got slow. He wasn't the same guy. And he has really worked his butt off to get back to that, what, what he was as a freshman. But with all the knowledge that he has as a, as a senior, and, and he looks like a completely different player. I saw him against East Eastside Catholic last week, one of the better pros, uh, teams in the uh, in the uh, state, and um, just blew the doors off uh, on a lot of different things. So do I think he would be an asset at Washington if they took him? Yes. Do I think Washington wants him that bad? No. Um, I, I think they would take him if he wanted to commit, but I don't think they're pushing that hard on him. We'll see. Um, but, you know, the fact that uh, Jaden Lemar is the guy who um, hosts him every time he comes down to Oregon to check things out and Jaden Lemar doesn't have a, a great feeling, you know, former uh, Lake Stevens guy doesn't have a great feeling for this coaching staff. And so he sells Jason Brown on why Oregon is the place to be. And, and, that's that's definitely something that's playing into this a little bit. Um, I, do I think Washington still has a chance to get him even if he commits to Oregon here in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I do. I do think Washington, if they really want him and they really push for him hard, that they could get him. But um, right now, I'm just not sold that they want him that bad. And, and with the running back room the way it is, uh, Cameron Davis is almost certainly coming back. Um, the only person that you're losing is Richard Newton because uh, Daniel Nagata is coming back. Uh, Dylan Johnson is back. Tybal Rogers is in the is in the fold. Um, and uh, Will Nixon is also going to be in the fold as well. So you've got a you've got a decent uh, running back room already. And to add another back, um, I just don't know. I just don't know if you need to bring someone in. Plus, they can go to the portal and get a guy that's pretty good. So, you know, Jason Brown, good prospect. Not a not a end all be all kind of guy. Again, you go back to what Brandon Huffman said. If Washington had really shown the interest and put on mm -hmm. the full court press, there's mm -hmm. a good chance that he would wind up at Washington. But the thing that you know you mentioned and maybe glossed over a little bit too quickly, they have too many guys in the running back room as it is. Yeah, they already have a really really packed room, five guys. And now is Cameron Davis going to be a hundred percent by the time fall camp starts? We don't know. Uh, so, you know, we'll just have to wait and see, but, uh, you know, and I mean, the portal just changes so many things. People are still locked into this. If you don't get him, then you don't have a chance to get him in, in your, in your, uh, in your room. And, and then you're going to have to settle for guys when Washington can go out and find guys. I mean, they got Dylan Johnson this year and they got Wayne Talapapa the year before. These are, these are guys who are leading the team. Now, Cameron Davis probably would be leading the team right now in carries and in rushing yards and in touchdowns if he had stayed healthy, but he isn't. And so the guys that are taking over are just as good um, and, and are putting up numbers that, that, you know, Washington needs for this offense. What do you think Courtney Morgan's, what do you think his text messages and uh, voicemails and phone is like for, People in circles calling, yeah, calling to <laughs> want to be a part of this team. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's almost like you're the um, bouncer. You're, you're the doorkeeper. Yeah, yeah, you're you're the you're our gatekeeper. What do you call it? The gatekeeper. Where yeah. hey, you know, you're not good enough to be in this program, so go look somewhere else. Uh, maybe maybe the school down south. You know, that's you know Oregon. That's the where you could probably fit in. We're too good here. But uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just I don't know. You know, it's just um, Washington you know, has certain guys that they want. They have a certain mindset. They have a certain skill set that they want. And some guys are talented kids. 
that just aren't going to be good fits at Washington. Well, I'm not saying they're bad kids or per, bad personality or anything like that, but they're not guys that that Washington is really going to pursue very hard. And it's because they vet them. They know what they're looking for in a kid. And if the kid doesn't have everything they're looking for, they're going to move on and, and go find someone who does fit those things. Dylan Johnson has another Dylan Johnson has another year left, right? Uh, he, I believe he has two. I think okay, so he's only you, a red, redshirt sophomore, yeah. You're going to have Cam Davis, Tybo Rogers, and Dylan Johnson next year. Yes. I'd like Good to say right. something if I could for a minute. Yeah. No, no, you're cut off. Okay. Well, <laughs> I would say since the since the portal is kind of in its relative infancy as far as Washington's concerned, like I'd, I think I'd go back to when they picked up Jacob Eason's kind of being the beginning of kind of how Washington has used the portal. I think there's a lot of fans out there that are mistakenly kind of comparing the portal and getting players from the portal every year to getting like junior college transfers. Yeah. There's not, there is literally no comparison because you know how a lot of teams would get into the habit of getting junior college transfers and you get in that vicious cycle of you always have to kind of replenish Well, trying to find quality guys at the power five level from junior colleges is one thing trying to do that from the transfer portal is like hyperdrive. It's like now all of a sudden you've expanded your list of potential players that you could get by about a hundred, <laughs> you know? So, cause junior colleges, first of all, there just aren't that many of them anymore. And especially out West, but then you add to it, the fact that now you're, you're calling not only the best, some of the best players from all over the country, but you're doing it at multiple levels, the FCS level and the FBS level, you know, because not only did Washington find uh, Dylan Johnson and Daniel and but they also found Josh Cuevas, you know, so, you know, and they found Zach Durfee. So you, you're calling him from every level of college football and you're doing it with players that are at least what you would assume are usually way better than whatever their junior college equivalent would be. So hopefully people can stop kind of making, at least in their own minds, these comparisons or these comparisons and contrasting to junior colleges because there's no comparison to make whatsoever. Well, I think the comparison is you're getting an older, experienced player with a little bit higher of a track record that you can go by. And then also, I would say, and Sky, you covered JC for a long time, Would you? but would you be willing to bet that a majority of the kids that are at JC, number one, weren't talented enough to go to a D1? And number two, just didn't have the grades to get into the schools. That's number, there's always it's always outliers, but yeah the 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 talent standpoint. No, I think there are plenty of talented guys that could play Power Five football. But from a grade standpoint, no. They're, from Washington standpoint and what Washington has to look for, no. I, I think some of these guys just weren't ever going to. Even if they were able to get qualified, there were there were guys that Washington passed on because they. They had no chance to be successful um, academically at Washington. Yeah, and and it's not like they haven't used them. Like we've seen, you know, uh, you know, Thaddeus Dixon is a guy they just picked up. Yeah. They Demario King in the past. Uh, Quentin Moore. So it's not like Washington can't use the junior college system to help supplement what they're already doing. But now that junior college system is like maybe option three. When yeah. you're looking at the high school system, the portal, and then the junior college ranks is is kind of not last resort, but it's it's the lesser thing that they would be looking at. No, when you're looking to fill in, if you're looking to fill in for depth or, you know, you've got a hole, uh, Washington and a lot of schools in the past would look for that JC guy, the old, a little bit older, a little bit more mature. But again, like you said, Chris, you know, you're going to go to the portal first and look for those guys. And then if you can't find that guy, like take a look at the JC guy. And there's always outliers. You can always find an exception. But I think you're pretty much correct that that's option number three. But you know, hey, it's there. Yeah, but, sometimes uh, you find a unique situation, like Quentin Moore, for instance. I mean, he played high school ball at Inglemore. There was a local angle. He wanted to be a Husky. It made a lot of sense. He had done a lot of maturing when he played his junior college ball in Kansas and came back, and now he's a really good player. So you can find those little pieces, but you usually have to find a connection or you, there's some sort of backstory when you're going at the junior college route, at least as far as Washington is concerned. But again, the portal, it's just wide open now. It's wild west. You can go after anybody you want for any reason. And like you guys said, all those guys, especially on the offensive side of the ball, they're going to be knocking down Courtney Morgan's door, ask, begging him to get into this offense. So it's not going to be a problem. Oh, yeah. If you're a wide receiver, you want to play in this offense? 
Yeah, exactly. Like, well, I mean, Jeremy Bernard had a connection to Washington, obviously, but was it a problem when when he called the Washington coaches back or whoever called the Washington coaches back to, to say, hey, can I come back and do this thing? He's like, yeah, I, we, we'd love to have you. But just one other thing, when you're looking at portal guys and what I've heard, you know, from people who talk to people who talk to people, Washington, if you're talking to the portal, they're not looking for guys who aren't playing. If you're not playing, you're probably not going to be a candidate for Washington. You're going to need to be an experienced player who's produced uh, wherever you were to uh, have a chance to come into Washington from the portal. But, you know, giving that, you know, just a good segue into when you're talking about portal and more experience. Media Day for basketball begins next week down in Las Vegas, Tuesday for the women, Wednesday for the men. Washington's done a great job in the portal. Uh, this may be the oldest basketball team Washington has ever had with guys like Moses um, Moses Wood out of Portland State and Paul Mulcahy and William Bradenbach. This is going to be a deep team. It's going to be totally different where from what we've seen in the past. They've scrapped the zone. I don't know that they've even practiced the zone at all. They've had Larry Brown. And it's a consultant uh, working on the defense. And uh, I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm pretty intrigued on what's going to be happening with men's basketball this year. Yeah. And it, it typically like when we've seen them go on tours, like in the past when they've gone to Europe and stuff, we've had probably a little bit better idea because not only did we get to see them play a little bit, if you watched them on their on the on the streaming, if they had options there. But, you know, they only played two games in Europe uh, this time around not on TV. You got to see some of the box scores. And when you see a guy like Christian King scoring 16 points, you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Christian King was supposed to be like the 13th guy this year on the 12 man roster. So <laughs> when you see something like that happen, Kim, you're like, um, yeah, this team may be just a little bit different than last year's. Yeah. The other thing too, is, you know, they lost Frank Kepnong early last year, which left them with one, big that they could count on. They really couldn't count on Jackson Grant and Braxton Mia had to handle the load. But with Frank Kepnon coming back with um, uh, Braxton Mia, and then I got a chance to see Wilhelm Bradenbach, and he was better than I anticipated. He's a lot more athletic, and he's also a guy that can shoot the three and play the four. So you can have two bigs on the floor at a time. And having three bigs, we've seen what happens when you only have one big or no big. And Washington has been in trouble with that for quite some time. They've also had point guard issues in the past, but now they've got three legitimate guys that can play point guard, if not four, in a Severe Wheeler, the transfer from Kentucky. You've got Corin Johnson, who just looks fantastic. Paul Mulcahy, the transfer from Rutgers, is six foot seven, plays a lot of point. And then um, why am I spacing on the other guy? Nate Calmes, you know, the transfer in from Lamar, who seems to be that guy who can come off the bench and give you that instant offense. And then we're, I haven't even talked about the guy that some guys behind the scenes is telling me the best player on the floor is the freshman, Wesley Yates, who very well could be a one and done guy. So this has got the chance to be a real interesting, unique team. And it's probably one of the older teams in the country as well. Yeah, I think the other thing to look at, too, is that they've got 17 guys in this team now. So they've got not just the full complement of 13 scholarship guys, but they brought in four uh, new walk on or at least three walk on players, uh, new walk on players at all. Um, I know uh, Sam Slitsky, he, he played last year, but um, you, you've got some other guys like this uh, Nehemi Cabella who played at Rainier Beach. Um, you've got the, the kid from uh, Gig Harbor and Will Andrum, uh, Isaiah Sherrard, who played down in SoCal. Um, you know, they're they're bringing in guys to really compete and, and make these these frontline guys work and work hard. And so I think the roster construction, I think now that um, Mike Hopkins and you've got Will Conroy and you've got Quincy Pondexter, you've got this staff now kind of cohesive and they've got a few years now of working this this portal system and trying to figure out how they should really construct their roster. I think, Kim, is it fair to say that maybe they they've finally kind of dialed in on what they need and and yeah. not just what they need on the court, but also what they needed in the locker room in terms of chemistry, in terms of these guys being on the same page and being together and having that nice blend of experience, but also having some some new guys coming in to provide some energy. Well, the guy that I really like, I haven't touched bases on, and, you know, he's kind of flying under the radar a little bit is Anthony Hall into the transfer from uh, Fresno State. And I keep on comparing him to a guy that played for Lorenzo, Mike Anderson, 
I don't know, you know, how well people remember Mike Anderson, but he was just that guy that came in. If you needed him to score, he'd do it, rebound, steal, play defense. But he just would give you that six to eight points that mattered. He'd get that seven to eight rebounds that mattered. He would make the assist. He would play tough defense. He would set the picks. He would draw the fouls. He just did a little bit of everything. He was that guy that you need that guy with that's going to do the dirty work to win. And they have that in Anthony Holland from Fresno State. And that's a guy I really like. And, you know, um, I was talking to uh, Mike Hopkins about him. He goes, look at him. He says he looks like he could play in the 40-year-old beer league. Doesn't have a great body. Isn't that – I mean, but – he just makes guys better. So keep an eye on uh, Anthony Holland out of Fresno State. I think he's going to be that glue guy that they really, really need. So um, I'm excited about uh, men's basketball coming up. And like I said, people are going to give me crap because I said last year I expect them to be better. Well, if they hadn't lost Noel Williams at the beginning of the year and Frank Capnong, I think it would have been a totally different team. Well, again, yeah, these are things you can't account for. And w- what happens if they lose a couple guys right off the bat this year? Things They're could, fine. Things could fall the same way. But you you do get the sense that they are at least a little bit more fortified to kind of handle it this year than they were last year. Yeah, and one more thing. Walking through Heck Ed, holy <laughs> crap. They've, they not only put the LEDs in Husky Stadium, they put them in Heck Ed. And then with the addition of the new floor, which is a lot lighter, it is really bright in heck ed. I walked in there the other day and I go, crap, I need my sunglasses. It's so bright in here. So I don't know how much that impacts shooting or when the crowd gets in there. But, uh, you know, the light show at uh, heck ed, especially for player introductions, it's going to be uh, interesting in there. And, you know, Chris, I- I've told you about this conversation. Frank Kepnong is a really, really, really bright guy. He's a computer science major. And He's always seems to be intrigued about how things work, and it's fun talking to Frank. So he told me that he saw the LEDs, and it was wild. I asked him if he'd gotten involved on how that works, and he said, not yet. And I told him that he needs to be involved in how that works, and then he could become the master when he graduates, and then he can go on tour with Kanye and be his light guy in a couple of years, and he's all over that. So, <laughs> Well, this will they do the – will they darken it pregame? Because this is the only – Washington's the only school – that I've been to for, for a game where they don't do it in the Pac-12. They've never done it. Yeah. Well, I think they'll do it now. Yeah, it'll be cool. And I think the getting the dog pack involved would be cool. But, uh, you know, again, I'll be down at uh, Pac-12 Media Day with uh, for both the men and women. I'll have a chance for the first time to talk with Tina Langley from the women. Hey, so By the way, she, uh, yeah. she is awesome to talk to. And Washington, I'll tell you what, there, you know, every, every AD is going to have – bad hires or, or whatever. And, and I mean, it's just going to happen. I, I believe that Jen Cohen hit a home run, an absolute home run with, uh, Tina Langley, Washington's they're recruiting. Well, they, they went real deep into, they went to the final, was it the final four of the, they don't call it the final four, but the, of the, uh, where they played Kansas and they lost. Um, but I mean, they go, they went to the final four of the NIT, you know, I mean, this is a program that was almost dead. I mean, it, it was just it was so given up for dead. And Tina Langley has has infused them with <clears throat> confidence, talent. And I think I think people need to wake up to the fact that this this women's program at Washington, I, I'm excited about the men's program and the women's program has me just as excited because they have some really talented young players that are going to be really good over the next couple of years. Wrap it up, Chris Fetters. Let's get rocking and rolling. We got football to watch. Yeah, and I was going to add real quick that uh, you talk about the roster construction for the men. The roster construction for the women has been really, really interesting because Tina Langley did kind of use the portal initially to, to find players like Lauren Schwartz and and Delia Daniels to, to kind of come back and, and be a part of this thing initially. But now she's really hit the high schools hard, and it really feels like, at least on the outside, looking in from what people have said, that – uh, this recruiting class of the high school ranks was was really highly ranked. So obviously, I think there's a lot of anticipation to see what this women's team is going to do. And Kim, you're going to find out a little bit more about that next week, which will be kind of cool. So I think overall, again, it does feel like kind of the lull before the storm uh, with this with this uh, Oregon Washington game on the horizon and, and game day almost assuredly coming to Seattle again. Can can Washington win a game during 
game day in Seattle. That's going to be the next hurdle they need to overcome. So there's going to be a lot of uh, anticipation for that. And I just know next week is going to be crazy. So uh, try to relax and, and, and rest up a little bit, Washington fans, because next week's going to be uh, hell on wheels. Wrap it up, Scott Eklund. So looking forward to next Saturday. It's going to be electric in that stadium. Um, the nervous energy, I think, uh, from Husky Nation is going to be out there. I think I think the Ducks are pretty confident. I think Duck fans are pretty confident coming in that they're going to be able to handle Washington. I just they haven't seen an offense like what Washington's going to put out there. And you know I'm I'm really interested to see what players get healthy. Who's going to be ready to go for the game? Is Asa Turner back? Is Romo Dunze a hundred Odunze a hundred percent healthy? Is Tuli Latulisanoa a hundred percent healthy? So we'll have to wait and see on that. But um, a lot of stuff to hype up. So enjoy today. Because there's nothing going on other than you guys being able to watch football and and watch USC, watch Arizona State, watch Stanford the next few games, watch Utah play, watch Oregon State and Wazoo play. Watch all those games because uh, those are the games on the schedule coming up. But uh, this Oregon game is is going to be so much fun to be a part of and be at. Um, and um, I, I think I think. You're, this is going to be a game that 15, 20 years from now and, and your kids, if you take them to the game, they're going to say, I was in like, like you, Chris, and, and me, because I was in the stands for the All I Saw Was Purple game. And and all, and all I've been in the stands for a lot of different games that were huge games for the Huskies. And um, this will be a game that your kids will be able to say, I was on the on the you know, I was in the stands for that game and it was unbelievable. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And it's 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 kind of nice to have a little bit of a break. But uh, we get right back into it and that, and that long push toward the the conference championship possibility and the college football playoffs. Into the teeth of the season, still a lot of tough games to go. Seven games left on the schedule. Oregon, Utah, USC, Oregon State, Arizona State, and uh, Stanford. Stanford still on the schedule. So uh, I'm going to miss my trips down to the Bay Area, and I'm going to miss my trips down to the desert. And uh, hopefully we get this one warm weather game per year. So, again, just, uh, you know, we appreciate all the people that are subscribing to Dogman.com. And uh, we try to crank out as much content as we possibly can. And, uh, yeah. It's going to be fun. So for all of us at dogman.com, I'm Kim Grenolds along with Chris Fetters and Scott Eklund. Go dogs. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.